This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, Dr. Schilling uh, has been a Forbes columnist for more than 40 years. He publishes a newsletter titled Insight. And uh, Dr. Schilling brings some interesting perspective. Uh, He will give us a scenario during the interview under which he thinks inflation is possible. However, he is of the opinion we are more likely to see deflation. So in the interest of providing you lots of different perspectives here, uh, I know you're going to look forward to listening to my interview with Dr. Schilling in the second and third segments of today's program. We're also going to get his take on where U.S. Treasury bonds and where stocks go. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. In the first and fourth segment of today's program, I want to chat with you a bit about some news stories that have been circulating, but given all the other news stories grabbing headlines with an election looming this week, um, these stories have gone unnoticed by much of the population. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that media simply doesn't report on a lot of stories. However, the developments I want to talk about involving currencies seem to be evolving very quickly. And it's my opinion that these evolutions, these coming changes, it appears, to currency should be on the radar of everyone. Why? Well, if you think about the important commodities in your life, behind oxygen and food, there is currency, and arguably currency might be number two. Now, as I have been talking about here on the RLA radio program, there's growing evidence that central banks around the world are now moving in the direction of digital currencies. Now, the whole idea of a digital currency is nothing new at all. Bitcoin, uh, which is a digital currency, a cryptocurrency, has existed for more than a decade. But the migration of central bankers to digital currencies is relatively new. Now, I want to frame this conversation by talking a bit about a cycle or a concept that I wrote about back in the 2015 book, New Retirement Rules. So about five years ago, a little more than that, I should say, when New Retirement Rules was released, I talked about this idea of a money currency cycle. Now, with only slight variations throughout all of history, money has evolved. And it begins with money having tangible value. And often at this stage of the money cycle, money is actually something tangible, most often gold and silver. So during this first stage of the money currency cycle, money has intrinsic value. The money passed back and forth that you use to buy things, whether it's goods or services, has real value. Now, the second stage of this money currency cycle sees money evolve from something tangible to a paper receipt that that can be used to claim the tangible money. Now, there are lots of examples of this 
throughout monetary history going all the way back to the 1600s. But most recently, some of you may recall or have heard about the paper silver certificate, which was used up until the 1960s to claim ownership of coins that actually contained silver. In fact, a silver certificate, whether it was a $10 silver certificate or $20 silver certificate, said, in the case of a $10 silver certificate, $10 in silver payable to the bearer on demand. Now, back in the 1960s, if you had a $10 silver certificate or 10 silver dollars, you had exactly the same purchasing power. However, fast forward to today, and a $10 silver certificate would have $10 of purchasing power. However, the 10 silver dollars would have purchasing power of about $175. Now, this disparity in the purchasing power of silver certificates and silver comes about because the third stage of the money currency cycle comes about. So the first stage, we have money actually being gold or silver. The second stage, we have paper money that is directly redeemable for gold or silver. The third stage has that link between the paper and the tangible money broken. At this point, the currency becomes a fiat currency. And a fiat currency, by definition, is legal tender because the government says it is. It's currency by fiat. The currency doesn't have much intrinsic or tangible value. Now, that's been the case with the U.S. dollar since 1971. It also now describes every currency that exists in the world. Think about this for a minute. If you have a $100 bill in your wallet and a $1 bill in your wallet, the intrinsic value is exactly the same. The paper on which the green ink is printed has the same tangible value. They're the same size. They're the same color. It takes the same amount of ink to print them. The reason that a $100 bill has 100 times the purchasing power of a $1 bill is simply a government decree. It's the printing on the bill. Now, the final stage in the money currency cycle sees the fiat currency fail. This happens due to excessive money creation almost always to paper over government deficit spending. Now, this, I believe, is the case presently. As past RLA radio program guest Alistair McLeod pointed out in a recent article, when the U.S. government's operating deficit is calculated from March of this year on an annualized basis, the operating deficit is about $4.4 trillion. $4.4 trillion operating deficit in a year dwarfs the tax receipts that are received in a year. Now, this final stage of the money currency cycle is not yet here, but based on these numbers, we have to ask, can it be far away? At the present time, the Federal Reserve, which is the central bank of the United States, they're simply papering over this huge, this mammoth, operating deficit. If you apply a little critical thinking to this current situation, you would have to conclude that this cannot continue long term. 
Now, while another stimulus package has not yet passed, it would not be surprising to see another one pass. Should it pass, and should it be a couple trillion dollars or more, forget about taxing the billionaires. The billionaires worldwide confiscating 100% of their wealth would raise about $8 trillion. And if another stimulus package is passed, that would cover the operating deficit for the year with only about a trillion dollars left over. So these are big numbers. Now, as I have often said here on the program, it's a lot easier to forecast the what than it is to forecast the when. Now, in this case, should current monetary policies continue to be pursued, the what is highly predictable. We are only debating the when. Now, as I noted at the outset of this segment, there's a lot of discussion taking place as far as currency changes are concerned. I'm going to talk about these in detail in the last segment of the program. Now, these discussions were whispers not long ago, and now they are published stories. On past programs, I have discussed the fact that there are many countries around the world who are testing digital currencies, or to be more accurate, central bank digital currencies, Ukraine, Uruguay, the Bahamas, and parts of China, just to name a few. Now the U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, is openly discussing central bank-issued digital currencies, and I've got some articles that I'll share with you in the last segment of today's program. Before I get to my interview with A. Gary Schilling in the next segment, let me remind you that if you've not yet downloaded the RLA app, you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and do that. Just follow the instructions when you get to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can download the RLA app and get access to all of our free resources. I'll be back after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me again on today's program is returning guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, Dr. Schilling uh, publishes a, what is in my mind, must-read newsletter. It's titled Insight. It is a 30- to 40-page report that has extensive overviews of the economy. Uh, You can learn more by visiting www.agaryshilling.com or calling Dr. Schilling's office at 888-346-7444. And I will give that information uh, out again uh, during the interview. Gary, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back with you, Dennis. It's always a pleasure. Well, likewise. Gary, in your October Insight newsletter, the one that I just mentioned, um, you lead with a headline that says, Real estate is now a zero-sum game. Can you explain? Yeah. You know, in the past, real estate, various sectors tended to move together. When you had a strong economy, uh, people were buying single-family houses. They had jobs. They were renting apartments. Uh, they were shopping, going to malls. Uh, office office uh, employment was increasing. Uh, students were occupying more rental dorms. Uh, the, the whole real estate sector was pretty well moving together. But, but since the pandemic, uh, it's really changed and we've had this uh, tremendous rush into single-family housing 
people want to get out of cramped apartments in cities. They want more space. Uh, they they want a home office. They want a place where the kids can be if they can't go to school. Um, they 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 want to uh, get away from close close encounters with other people and so on. So you've had that, and and of course uh, you've had with that reinforced things like uh, the Amazon Amazon effect. More people ordering online. Uh, those are things that have been winning. But then you look at the other side of the coin. Uh, malls are in terrible trouble. Uh, office buildings, occupancies are declining. Rentals are in trouble. We may have a lot of foreclosures coming up when moratoria, uh, when moratoria run off at the beginning, at the end of this year. Student housing, you know, people aren't there. So these outfits that build uh, private um, uh, student housing residences, they're they're in trouble. Uh, you know, you go you go down you go down the line, and and things related to uh, Single-family housing have done well, but almost everything else, including rental apartments, have, have really suffered. So, Gary, let's look at the, the boom side of this real estate equation for a moment. Um, to what extent um, would you say that uh, the, the, the stampede to single-family housing in certain areas is geographic? In other words, people wanting to escape maybe some of the turmoil we've seen in, in some of the big cities around the country. And to what extent is it driven by the uh, COVID situation in your view? Oh, I think that's the primary driver. And this is an area that is extremely volatile. Dennis, you, you recall that after the, uh, after, the, after the financial crisis, the subprime mortgage meltdown, uh, a lot of younger people, millennia, couldn't afford uh, single-family housing. They uh, they uh, they wanted to uh, they wanted to be in cities. Now, whether that was making a, a virtue out of necessity is a good question. Uh, but they were in rental apartments, and and that became a great area. And and even single-family houses that were bought up by various uh, uh, financial institutions and then rented out. Uh, so you had that rush into the cities into apartments, and now it's it's completely reversed. Now, the reason I mention that is that it simply points out that what's going on now, uh, it may have legs, but it's not, it's, it's, it's not permanent. You, you got to be careful about getting carried away about single family housing. But at least for now, that's the, that's the, that's the game in real estate. And Gary, you, you, you know, you mentioned this, at least for now, it's not forever. And, uh, you know, when you look at interest rates on, on new mortgages, they're uh, near all-time lows, if not at all-time lows. Uh, the average down payment, according to some numbers I was looking at on a home, is actually a lower number than it was during the the, the real estate bubble that eventually burst at the time of the financial crisis that uh, that you just mentioned. So is it your view that, that we are seeing another real estate bubble when it comes to single-family residential homes, or uh, what? What's your take? Well, it's a boom. I'm not sure it's uh, quite a bubble. It's not quite up to the subprime mortgage hysteria that we saw uh, leading up to the uh, real, really the collapse that started in 2007. Uh, but it's 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 getting close, and I think the, I think it probably will cool off one way or the other. Now you say, why will that happen? Well, uh, first of all, people are encouraged an awful lot of mortgage debt. And that has not come to the fore uh, previously because 
you've had moratoria on foreclosure. But a lot of those at the federal, state, and local level, those forbearances are running out. So, you know, push may come, is likely to come to, sh to shove early next year. Uh, also, the rental apartment area isn't exactly dead. You still have these, uh, you still have these uh, various outfits buying up houses, single family houses, even building single family housing that is for rentals. It's not for sale, it's for rental. And, and, you know, they haven't gone away. And obviously, like anything else, uh, as the prices uh, adjust and the single family house prices are going through the roof and price of apartments have declined, you know, you get to the point where people say, hey, um, regardless of risk, I think I'll go for an apartment or that's all I can afford. And then with a, with a lingering um, virus, the pandemic, and as you know, Tennis, I've been, uh, I've been strongly the belief that this is going to be an extended recession lasting into next year, that the idea of reopening, the whole thing was going to go away, was simply, uh, was simply wishful thinking. And I think we're, we're seeing that now with uh, renewed cases. We're going into the winter when people are inside. Flu is always a problem uh, when people are confined anyway. And, and so I, I think when you put that together, uh, you know, we may, see, we may see a cooling off in the single family housing area and a, and a, and a rebalancing. I, I don't, at this point, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't see a collapse. We're not really to those tippy top levels that we were with the, with the subprime nonsense, you know, where people were buying houses with nothing down and they were assured they'd never have to make a, a, a payment because the house would appreciate, it could be refinanced, money could even be taken out. Uh, they never actually have to make a dime in a monthly payment. I mean, that, that nonsense is, is not there, but uh, we're, we're certainly getting up there into the, uh, uh, into the speculative end of the spectrum. Well, if you're just joining me, I'm chatting today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Dr. Schilling is the publisher of the terrific newsletter, Insight. Uh, we're chatting with him about some of the topics he wrote about in the October issue. Uh, you can learn more by giving his office a call at 888-346-7444 or visiting his website at www.agaryshilling.com. And Schilling is spelled S-H-I-L-L-I-N-G. Um, Gary, in your October Insight, um, you uh, there was a statistic that kind of jumped out at me, and it, it was a, a staggering statistic to me, really. You wrote that in New York City, the price of high-end condominiums are collapsing as much as 46% from almost $20 million to just over $10 million, and you cite an example of uh, West Chelsea as the neighborhood that that, that, that is happening. So um, from a geographic perspective, would it be fair to say that, that this boom in single-family housing is, is benefiting more more rural, maybe more suburban areas, and it's at the expense of city real estate? Oh, yeah, I, I think very much so. If you look at uh, New York City, of course, very dense population, uh, apartments, uh, but you also have uh, effects in Los Angeles, uh, much more spread out, but still dense population, and Chicago. Uh, and, and, you know, these are areas that are really suffering. But where are people moving? They're moving to the suburbs. They're moving to suburbs of these cities. They're moving to rural areas. They're even moving to uh, resort areas. You look at what's happening on the uh, outer banks of North Carolina resort area. Uh, there, the... Uh, 
uh, how sales have gone through the roof as, as have prices. Uh, vacancies have collapsed. Same thing if you look in the eastern end of Long Island. A lot of people have uh, vacation places there, and they've moved out there. Uh, we have a, this is a sample of one, we have a beach house on Fire Island, which is a barrier beach off the south coast of Long Island. And uh, it's a seasonal community. you got to take a ferry to get there. Uh, houses aren't heated. Uh, so it's really a seasonal affair. And, and normally it, it runs from uh, April to uh, to the end of, of uh, well, Columbus Day, um, early October. I look at the parking lot now there, and the place is still jammed. I mean, there are a lot of people who have uh, basically moved out of their New York apartments that are hanging on out there, hoping they can last until the weather freezes them out. <laughs> but it's a, it's a very, very different situation, and and people are 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 just fleeing from this. And it's very much like they did uh, in uh, 1666 with the with the uh, Great Plague in London and uh, and and the fire. Um, you know, anybody who had uh, a couple of a couple of uh, shillings, pounds, fled to the countryside. They didn't understand a bubonic plague, and and that was a bacterial disease, very easily spread. But they knew getting out of town was, was one way of avoiding it. And it's the same thing today. Well, Gary, uh, we have time for just one more question in this segment. Uh, you had mentioned in your October Insight newsletter that. You know, going into this year, about 24% of people work from home, but now, in light of COVID-19, it's jumped to 31%, so almost a one-third increase. Um, to what extent do you see that trend continuing, and um, how will that continue to impact the sale of maybe single-family homes with more square footage to do everything you need to do in a house? Yeah, well, I, I'm sure the whole thing is is being overdone. Uh, there is a bad aspect of this. There are self-equilibrating aspects of the economy all the time. Every time you think that things are going to go one way for other, uh, forever, uh, you, you forget that there are things that are self-correcting. As I mentioned earlier, I think that we will we will probably see um, apartments cheaper. Uh, people are people are really going to get a callous to this. As a matter of fact, that's one of the problems. They're not as careful as they should be. Uh, but I do think that there is a uh, there is a a bit of a permanent shift here, not to the extreme we have it now, but people are finding out that they can catch up with technology, that they don't need to go to the office, they don't need to you know commute for uh, an hour, two hours, or more each each way every day, uh, that they can work from home at least at least part time. Uh, so I think, uh, and you know, the technology has been there, but we just we just have not used it. We haven't been forced to. Uh, but I think now, you know, rather than rather than a lot of face-to-face -face meetings, which which may uh, make make clients and friends feel good, but are not really necessary, people are saying, "Hey, wait a minute, we don't need that." And I rather that I suspect that some of that is going to stick. Now, what to what extent will, will remains to be seen, but I do think there is a bit of a permanent change. Well, my guest today is Dr. A. Gary Schilling. He publishes the newsletter Insight. You can learn more at agaryshilling.com or call 888-346-7444. I'll continue my conversation with Dr. A. Gary Schilling after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tuberg, and I'm chatting today with the publisher of Insight newsletter, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. 
Uh, if you're just joining me, I'd encourage you to check it out at www.agaryshilling.com. And you can call the, his office as well at 888-346-7444. So, Gary, let, let's jump back in where we left off. Your October Insight talks about the fact that real estate is now a zero-sum game. And we talked about the boom that we're seeing in single-family homes. You, uh, in your newsletter, uh, have another statistic that uh, I, did, I found hard to believe. Las Vegas Sands reported a 97% plunge in occupancy rates. Obviously, we're going to see a lot of trouble in the leisure and hospitality sector if that trend continues. Oh, yeah. What, what, we're, what we're really discovering is how much of consumer spending is discretionary. We, we took a look at the various categories you know, of, 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 of food you buy in grocery stores uh, as opposed to food you buy in restaurants, uh, travel and entertainment, uh, sporting goods. Uh, you run down you run down the list, and we we categorize these as as essentials, uh, medical care, groceries, uh, and things that are discretionary, airline travel, and so on, and then things that are somewhat mixed. And we came to the conclusion that 47% of consumer spending was discretionary. And that's a huge, huge chunk. You don't have to have that cut back very much to do tremendous devastation to the economy. I mean, bear in mind that, uh, you know, in a recession, uh, if the economy declines 3%, that's a major recession. In other words, you're not talking about complete collapses. So when you, when you get numbers like this, uh, it, it's, really, uh, it's really staggering. Uh, this is, I think, without question, uh, the most devastating uh, event hitting the world economy uh, since World War II. And, and, and we're, we're continuing to see that. And, and what we're really finding is that a lot of these things are, are strictly discretionary, that um, people that thought that they were in secure jobs, uh, that they were, you know, people had to go out uh, to eat, they had to go out to gamble, they had to go out and spend money here or there, racetracks or whatever. They don't need to. And when they're faced with the prospects of contracting the virus, they say, wait a minute, I think I'll stay home. So, Gary, if I can shift gears for a minute, um, the Fed has engaged in massive money creation this year. Uh, how do you see that impacting our average listener and the economy? Well, that, that obviously has been the case. You've had the Fed uh, creating a lot of money. Um, it hasn't had a great deal of, of impact. Uh, without getting into gory details, what's happened is a lot of the of the reserves that the Fed has created for banks have just let, have just sat there. They haven't been lent and relent in the normal pattern, great multiplier effects, um, and so what they call the velocity of money, the turnover, has virtually collapsed. Uh, that has done not much good. I, I think some of that money has gone into into stocks, and that's very much what propelled them. In the decade of the, of uh, you know after after 2007 when the Fed went into quantitative easing, similar kind of pattern. What's what's been more effective in terms of people's incomes and spending has been uh, fiscal stimulus. The the $1,200 that people got uh, earlier in the spring, and then $600 supplemental unemployment benefits, and that meant a lot of people between the regular state 
in employment benefits and the extra federal benefits. They, they were making more money staying home than they were working. That's been one of the reasons that they're struggling to renew this kind of thing. But the point is that uh, you have had a lot of this money pumped out, but by the same token, uh, people are scared. Um, they've used uh, some, a lot of that money to pay down their debts, to rebuild their assets. Uh, there, there's there's real concern out there, and uh, and and so you haven't seen you haven't seen a a massive uh, response. Now there's probably going to be a, another round of fiscal stimuli, but it's it's what's really amazing is that here we are right up to the election, and you would think that's the one time that politicians want to indicate to everybody that they're being very generous, and nothing has happened. Um, so it really if you know I'm not sure how you completely explain this, except for political infighting in Washington. But uh, the point is that, uh, yeah, there probably will be more more of this. Uh, but will that offset the continued weakness in the economy because of the of the virus? And and the what we're seeing is renewed lockdowns in Europe. We're probably going to get that in the U.S. as well. Uh, I rather suspect that one way or the other, regardless of what they do in Washington, that this whole recession is going to drag well into next year, and it'll be uh, certainly the most severe recession since the 1930s. So, Gary, when you take a look at the level of money creation that's occurring, and I, I've been asking all my guests on this, on, on this about this particular topic because there's a, a big uh, disparity in opinions. Uh, to what extent do you think uh, continued money creation pose, poses a risk of significant inflation? Do you see that as a possible outcome? No, not at all. Uh, inflation is caused by demand exceeding supply. Now, right now, what we see is supply being hyped, particularly by Asia. Uh, the Asians are, are big producers, but they're not consumers. Uh, for example, in China, uh, their consumer spending is 39% of GDP. In this country, it's 68%. In other words, they are, they are producing, but they're not spending. There is a savings glut, and when you get that excess of supply over demand, what happens to prices? They go down. Uh, so I don't think that all this stimuli is going to make much difference. Now, the one thing that could recreate inflation is if, uh, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but it's a possibility if, if you had a complete tariff wall built around the U.S. or maybe around North America, in other words, they basically cut off these cheap imports from Asia and then continue with huge monetary and fiscal stimuli. In other words, they're creating a lot more demand and curtailing supply. Yeah, then they, then you could see a resurgence of inflation, but that's the only, that's the only viable uh, route to renewed uh, meaningful inflation that I can see. Well, we're chatting today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. He is the publisher of Insight Newsletter. You can learn more at agaryshilling.com or call his office at 888-346-7444. And Gary, in the time we have left, um, I'd like your take on uh, certain investment classes. Uh, I had John about six months ago, and uh, at the beginning of the year, you had suggested that uh, uh, U.S. Treasury bonds uh, were going to be good to own. That turned out to be uh, a really good place to be. Uh, give us your take right now on uh, U.S. Treasury bonds, given where interest rates are and what's transpired. 
Yeah, we're, we're, we're still very bullish on Treasury bonds. As you know, Dennis, I have been since ni- literally 1981. The yield on the 30-year bond was then 14.6%. It's now uh, 1.4%. One, 1. And as yields go down, prices go up. Uh, and, and so during that time, uh, uh, long-term treasury bonds have outperformed, have outperformed the S&P 500 by six and a half times. Now, people say, why would you buy a treasury bond with a yield that low? Well, I buy them, I buy them for the same reason. We, and we, we manage money. We have them in our own accounts and in our uh, money uh, accounts that we manage for outside clients. We buy them because we think yields are going lower. Uh, we had, uh, if you go from where we are now down to the low we had back in March, uh, which was uh, 0.98, uh, if you went down there, you probably have a return of about 15% in those treasuries. Now, why people somehow look on treasuries and say, oh, well, I wouldn't buy them, the yield is so low. But if they don't buy stocks for low, low yield, they buy stocks because they think they're going to appreciate. Well, that's the way I buy treasuries. It's the same argument. And I think that deflation, uh, soft world economies, a lot of uh, monitoring, a lot of, 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 of monetary stimuli, I think these are going to continue to push down treasury, treasury bond yields and make this an attractive investment area as it has been. So, Gary, give me your take on stocks. I, I uh, often talk about the fact that uh, Warren Buffett's favorite valuation indicator is market capitalization over GDP, and by that measure, stocks are extremely overvalued. Uh, what would your position be? Yeah, I think they are very, very expensive. You had a, a big departure here. People, have, uh, investors have somehow believed that monetary and fiscal stimuli was going to propel stocks irrespective of the economy. So here you have a very weak economy, which is getting weaker, renewed recession likely to continue to next year. Stocks have leveled off in, in the last month or so. And I think that's a prelude to probably, uh, probably a, a 30, 40% decline in the S&P uh, in, in coming months. Uh, you know, the valuations are just, and there, there are a lot of ways you can look at it, but uh, they are way overvalued right now. And, and particularly in view of what I think is a very weak economy. And uh, so we're, in our portfolios, we're short stocks. Let me just make that clear. Okay. We are on and, and And last question, when you take a look at uh, commodities, uh, what, what's your take on commodities? If you've got a world of excess supply, uh, which I think you do, commodity prices are under downward pressure. And, and, they, and they are traditionally. Um, you know the, the world. They always talk about running out of you know copper or whatever, but there, there's there's plenty of it. Uh, if you look back in the last 150 years, uh, the inflation-adjusted prices of commodities has continued to decline, and I think I think it will. Uh, and particularly now, since you have this uh, excess supply situation, weak economies. Uh, my favorite uh, on the on the downside is copper because it goes into almost anything manufactured, and there's no cartel on the supplier demand and like there is an oil to uh, really screw up a fundamental forecast. So um, I, I think copper on the short side uh, continues to be very attractive. 
Well, we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Dr. A. Gary Schilling. I would encourage you to go to www.agaryshilling.com and get more information about his Insight newsletter. You could also call his office at 888-346-7444. Gary, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Appreciate your insights and perspective and would love to have you back down the road. I hope we can do it again soon, Dennis. Thank you very much. We will return after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You're listening to RLA Radio. Thanks again to my special guest today, Dr. A. Gary Schilling, for offering us his perspective on the economy and investing markets. You know, as I talked about in the first segment of today's program, when I gave you some background about currencies, it's becoming widely reported that many world central banks are now testing digital currencies including the Central Bank of the United States. Now, this is an article, and I'm going to give you a quote from a Reuters article. I quote, The Federal Reserve is looking at a broad range of issues around digital payments and currencies, including policy, design, and legal considerations around potentially issuing its own digital currency, Governor Lael Brainerd said on Wednesday, end quote. Now, Lael Brainerd is a Federal Reserve governor who stated that the Federal Reserve is now studying digital currencies. Now, I did a bit of research, and I found a NASDAQ article that was published a couple years ago in which the Federal Reserve was kicking around the term FedCoin that would describe this digital currency. The idea of a digital dollar was proposed in some of the stimulus legislation earlier in 2020. Now, the Economic Policy Journal also commented on this potential development, and the article also includes a quote from Federal Reserve Governor Lael Brainerd. So this is again from the Economic Policy Journal. Quote, by transforming payments... Digitalization has the potential to deliver greater value and convenience at lower cost, Brainerd said. Some of the new players are outside the financial system's regulatory guardrails, and their new currencies could pose challenges in areas such as illicit finance, privacy, financial stability, and monetary policy transmission, she said. But she added the Fed is also conducting research and experimentation related to distributed ledger technologies and their potential use case for digital currencies, including the potential for a central bank digital currency. We are collaborating with other central banks as we advance our understanding of central bank digital currencies, she said. It appears they are now beginning to consider how to shut down private cryptocurrencies and introduce their own, end quote. Now, I reported here on the program just a few weeks ago that at the end of September, the European Central Bank trademarked the term digital euro. A week after that, just a couple weeks ago, I reported that the Bank of Japan released a statement that said they were working on a digital currency as well. Now, also from Reuters just recently, was an article that confirmed seven world central banks are now collaborating on a digital currency. These, five, these seven central banks 
are now working together on a digital currency. And I'll give you a bit from the article. And again, quote, Bank of England Deputy Governor and Chair of a Bank of International Settlements Committee on Payments, John Cunliffe, said the rise in cashless payments since lockdowns to fight the pandemic has accelerated how technology is changing forms of money. So lockdowns have changed how people are using money. More from the article, again, quoting, Central banks need to keep up to avoid the private sector plugging payments gaps in unsuitable ways, Cunliffe said. Besides the Fed and the Bank of England, the seven central banks that have teamed up with the Bank of International Settlements includes the European Central Bank, the Swiss National Bank, and the Bank of Japan. The People's Bank of China is not included. The People's Bank of China is already piloting a digital renminbi, which is the Chinese currency. The People's Bank of China said it would boost the yuan's reach in a world currently dominated by the dollar. Now, to avoid confusion, the Chinese currency is officially the renminbi. The yuan is a unit of currency. So those two terms, the yuan and the renminbi, are often used interchangeably. Now, at this point, from all the news stories that I have researched over the past couple months, it seems that all these digital currencies would be central bank issued and not backed by tangible assets like gold or silver. That means these proposed digital currencies would continue to be fiat and, in my view, doesn't solve any of the problems facing fiat currencies presently. In the first segment, I talked about the money currency cycle, and without a central bank digital currency backed by something tangible, you might extend this third phase of the money currency cycle for a while, but ultimately, the fiat money problems will become even worse. Now, central bank digital currencies or digital currencies, should they become reality in fiat form, they do raise a couple red flags. Now, the first red flag and many of you are probably already thinking about this, is the issue of financial privacy. See, if a digital currency were to be used exclusively, every transaction would be tracked, and prohibiting certain transactions would be easy. Now, the second issue, should a digital currency become exclusively used, and I should point out, this would be tough to sell. You'd have to, I believe use digital currencies along with cash for a period of time. But should a digital currency become exclusively used, it now becomes very easy for banks to impose negative interest rates. While the whole concept of negative interest rates would have been laughable 10 years ago, they've now become reality in many parts of the world, and they've been reality for quite a period of time. Now, I happen to believe that a fiat digital currency would simply accelerate the inflation cycle. And you have to ask yourself a question. If you were faced with a choice of owning a tangible asset or paying negative interest rates to park a fiat digital currency in the bank, what choice would most consumers make? What choice would you make? Would you say, yeah, let me leave my digital currency in the bank, let me see my deposit erode because of negative interest rates, or would you take the money out of the bank and buy something tangible? I think 
The answer is obvious. Now, again, as I close this segment, I want to remind you that we are all about education here at Retirement Lifestyle Advocates. And to that end, you can go to our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, and download the Your RLA app. The instructions are on the screen. Again, the website is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, and the instructions to download the app that get you access to our weekly newsletter, our weekly update webinar, and the podcast version of this program are all available through the app. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. 